Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Liz Ross, PhD. We're going to talk about her practice uh, that uses CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, for chronic pain, stress, and anxiety. Her website is drlizross.com, and Liz is L-I-Z, so it's D-R-L-I-Z-R-O-S-S.com. Liz, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, tell me about your background a bit, and then how you got into uh, CBD psychotherapy. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've always had an interest in, in the mind-body relationship, um, even from a young age. I've always had an interest in psychology and in psychotherapy and wanted, wanted to do this as a career. And, you know, throughout my training, I was lucky enough to have several rotations in hospitals and in primary care settings and things like that, where I was able to be kind of exposed to both worlds, medical world, the psychological world. Um, and then, you know, after I, I graduated from grad school, I actually worked at a rehabilitation hospital uh, called Tier Memorial Hermann. I worked there for six years and I worked mainly on inpatient spinal cord injury, but was also working on the outpatient side, overseeing outpatient services for insomnia, pain, trauma, uh, adjustment to major medical conditions, things of that nature. And so, you know, I eventually decided that, you know, it was time for me to kind of leave the nest and go out on my own and um, start my own practice, which has been incredibly rewarding. But I've taken, you know, those experiences, those things with me and in, in sort of molding my treatment and molding my care. Okay. And then what is CBT and how is it different from regular psychotherapy? If there is such a term. That's a good point, right? What is regular psychotherapy? And so CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is a treatment modality that's used for a lot of different conditions. I'm, I'm sure you've heard it before in relation to depression, anxiety, PTSD. And, and, and so what it means is it, it tends to be a more active therapy, more coping skills based. And so, you know, what I tell people is, 
you know, not, you're not going to come in session and just have somebody who's nodding their head along with what you're saying, right? I'm going to be collaboratively coming up with treatment goals, teaching you some skills in session, asking you to use those skills outside of session. And so, you know, the main components of CBT, the first is the C, which stands for cognitive. And what that basically means is thoughts or thinking. And so, you know, oftentimes I, I tell people your thoughts can be your friend or your foe and what we want them to be is our friend, but sometimes that doesn't, that doesn't happen. And so the cognitive part is usually about trying to help people to reframe negative automatic thoughts into something that's a little bit more balanced, a little bit more helpful to them. That can look different depending on what the presenting issue or presenting problem is, but but basic but the basic idea behind the cognitive component is is looking at thoughts and helping people come up with thoughts that that are more helpful to them. The behavioral component, the the B component, can look a little different uh, again depending on what the, the presenting condition is. But you know, a lot of times when we talk about something like anxiety or depression, um, what tends to happen is people's moods tends to decrease. You know, their their desired activities or or makes them want to avoid some of those desired activities or, or activities that would be good for them. And so a lot of times the B component is just kind of helping people to kind of gain confidence and being able to engage in some of those things and, and be able to engage in activities that are rewarding and meaningful to them. I know that I'm, I'm sort of being a little vague and a little broad here when I'm talking about CBT, but, but those are sort of the, the main components that we work on. So for anxiety, depression, et cetera, what, what do you have to tweak? What's unique about it and the people that experience it versus other problems, you know, like, I don't know, my wife hates me type thing, or I'm depressed <laughs> yeah. at work, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are good questions. So when you talk about depression, oftentimes people's, you know, they, people see things through a very negative lens and that's kind of what depression does and um, kind of cast a dark cloud over your your head. And a lot of times people's, again, people's thoughts tend to be pretty negative. They tend to be a little bit more ruminant. They ruminate about things perhaps that happened in the past that already happened that they might be sort of beating up on themselves for or something like that. And so, you know, again, you're trying to help them to to see things in a more balanced way, um, right? They're only attending to kind of the negative information and then their brain tends to ignore the positive or neutral information, right? And so you're trying to get them to kind of broaden their perspective a little bit there. And in a lot of times, you know, when people are depressed, it's, you know, their negative thoughts are about maybe themselves, the world, other people. Um, and, and those are usually some of the main targets that you're looking at. With something like anxiety, the thoughts tend to be a bit more future-based and they tend to be, you know, related to perceived risk or how dangerous something is and thinking that, you know, things that might be more, more dangerous or lead to more negative outcomes than they actually do. And so, you know, what I tell people is when anxiety is working the way it's supposed to, it actually, you know, protects you from, from bad things, right? It protects you from, you know, if you get to a tall building, you look over the ledge and your heart rate starts increasing, you know, that's an, that's a dangerous situation, right? Your anxiety is working well. Anxiety can just be really overprotective. And so it's telling you all of these situations are kind of more hazardous, more dangerous, going to lead to more ne- negative outcomes than they actually are. And so when I'm talking to people about ang- anxiety and anxious thoughts, a lot of times you're trying to target those kind of future oriented worries about, about outcome and worry about risk. Well, in a, and, in a session, if someone's feeling good right then and there, you know, how's the session versus like they're actively in a depressive period 
where they're actively anxious at that point? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So sometimes people will say, oh, you caught me on a really good day. This isn't a good day for therapy or something like that. And, you know, and, and, and you know, there's, there's some truth to that, right? It's like, you just get like a slice of what's going on with them, right? And that, that moment. So a lot of times I have people track things um, between sessions. I might have them track their thoughts or track their moods or you know, track their sleep or, or whatever it is. So I'm getting a, a bit of a broader picture of what's going on with them rather than just that hour that I'm meeting with them a week. That's a good question. Well, what happens if, um, you know, someone goes through depressive periods? Do you, you know, do you have them journal about what they're thinking? And then if they read it when they're not feeling depressed, do they react strangely to it? Do they say this is alien or they go, oh yeah, yeah, I remember feeling that. Like, is there a disconnect when someone's depressed or anxious from the normal thought process? You know, like, do they, they have a kind of temporary amnesia when they're in that state? (laughs) Uh, Maybe a little bit, like maybe, maybe they look back at their thoughts and say, wow, that was pretty, that was, that was pretty dark or, you know, that was, you know, I'm not thinking that way now. And I think that particularly comes up, you know, recently had a conversation with this, with a client about this is, like kind of those middle of the night thoughts, like some of those things you worry about or think about in the middle of the night and you wake up the next morning and you're kind of like, why, why was I even thinking about that? You know, why was I even worried about that? You know, over the course of treatment and therapy, usually, usually, you know, their moods aren't vacillating that drastically where they would have written something down, you know, three days before, and then just said, I can't believe I was thinking that way. I mean, sometimes that happens, but usually if they're bringing something to me in therapy, it's something that they're still a thought that they're still kind of struggling with. Okay. I mean, but again, what's patients reactions when, so they'll say, Oh, wow, that was really dark or yeah, I wasn't mm-hmm. feeling good that day, but are there mm-hmm. any, are there any insights they get by journaling when they're not feeling good? And then they look at it when they are feeling good. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the finding genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Sure, sure, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it also speaks to just, you know, sometimes what you're trying to drive home is just that, like you're saying, that a lot of times emotions can be temporary, right? And when you're in it, it's hard to see that, right? It's hard to say, I'm not going to feel this horrible forever, right? But then you kind of get that perspective of feeling a little better. And then you look back and you're like, wow, I can't believe I was feeling that way or you know, or, or vice versa, right? They, they're feeling bad. And then they look at something where they weren't feeling as bad and kind of reminds them like, okay, I don't, you know, I don't always feel this way. What about when they're in the throes of, you know, a depressive or anxious episode? Are there any tips or tricks or things you can give them that they can look at or listen to or watch that would remind yeah. them that they felt good before and they're just in the middle of a storm, let's say? Absolutely. There's, there's a number of different ways and just kind of depending on the client and what they gravitate towards. But sometimes I'll have them create something like a coping plan or coping thoughts or keep some of the the things that we did in session somewhere where they can kind of look back at it. Yeah, that's a good point when, when they are feeling down. And it just kind of, again, depends on the client and, and what's going on with their moods. But um, it's, it's not uncommon for me to have them 
either put something like that in their phone or have, you know, we type out a physical piece of paper together where they can refer to it so that, you know, kind of, I think what you're alluding to is when sometimes when you're in that state, your judgment's a little clouded and it's hard to, hard to remember all of that. And so just having something on hand can be really helpful. Well, you know, like in the movies, they'll have like some rich person that, that dies and then they'll watch the video. If you're watching this video, it means I'm dead. You know, like, is there an analog for people depressed or anxious? Like, if you're watching this video, it means that, you know, like them talking to themselves, it means that you're depressed right now. And I mean, would something like that work? Where they, uh, again, they talk yeah. to themselves and keep it ready for when they feel down? I haven't done anything like that necessarily, like recordings before. I guess it's not a bad idea, especially if somebody is, you know, maybe more visual or auditory. It's usually something written written down they can go to. There's also some interactive app that people use sometimes that might have a variety of things on them. It might have pictures. It might have, you know, again, you know, coping thoughts, um, things to take their mind off them, distract, distract them from whatever's going on, might have some meditations or mindfulness exercises. So again, you know, there's lots of different, different options out there for, especially for clients that periodically struggle or, or really struggle outside of session. It's nice to have something like that on hand. Yeah, and when, um, I mean, what's the evolution of, I know everyone's different, but a typical client, you know, what's the first session like and how long, how many sessions does it take till they see progress and what does progress look like? Like what are, you know, some customer journeys or client journeys that you're aware of that are common? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I get asked it pretty frequently and, you know, I hope people don't get too frustrated by my my somewhat vague response, but, um, you know, first session tends to be a little different and I try to give everyone that disclaimer where first session is just a lot of information gathering and getting to know someone. I, I try to send a lot of questionnaires even before the first session, just just so I have some sort of background and you know the person doesn't feel like they were were wasting time or anything like that. But you know, first session sometimes it bleeds into more into second session too, but more often than not, it's it's first session is that. And then from there, you know, I like to start off with just some education on whatever the treatment is. It's, it's, you know, generally speaking, a lot of times it's CBT, but, but not, not always. Sometimes there's other treatments that uh, I'll introduce as well. And, and I think, I think you gave an example earlier and I forgot to, to mention it. If somebody's having, let's say difficulties with the relationship or spouse, then, you know, the treatment focus is probably going to be a lot more on, on communication skills and conflict resolution and things like that. Right. Rather than working on thoughts and behaviors and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, usually what happens is then, I'll, you know, psychoeducation piece. And then I, I tend to get into the skills piece pretty quickly because I know that's what people want. They're coming in there before they're spending time and money and all those resources on it. And so I try to get into skills really quickly. Everyone works at a little bit of a different pace and everyone's coming with different issues. Some people are just very, you know, straightforward. One issue, for example. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Um, I get a lot of just very straightforward insomnia. And those people, you know, if, you know, assuming that they're very motivated and sticking with treatment and use it, utilizing the skills, they tend to get better pretty quickly. And usually, you know, the marker there is pretty obvious in terms of progress. You're looking at their sleep and how much sleep they're getting. With something like depression or anxiety, it can take a little longer, obviously, and, and particularly if somebody has a history of trauma or something like that, that's also in there as well. And it might be more of like a slow chipping away rather than, you know, these big sweeping changes all at once. 
So, you know, generally speaking, my treatments are pretty short term. You know, usually I give people say, you know, I'll, I'll say around three months, but again, it just really depends on what's going on with the person, what they're needing from treatment, what they're, the pace that they're comfortable with, et cetera, et cetera. When you do people getting this therapy have the expectation they could be fixed quickly or do they have the opposite <laughs> one? Like I'll try it, but I don't think this is going to work or this will take years or you know decades. Like what's, what are the expectations you are sensing from people or hearing? Yeah. You know, that's, that's a good question. And part of the reason that I try not to give them a specific number is because sometimes when I give people a specific number, then they get really fixated on that number of sessions. But, you know, I think people who come to me know that I do short-term empirically supported treatments and it's, again, pretty skills-based, a lot of back and forth that, you know, that's the type of therapist they're looking for usually and, and knowing that that's what I'm providing. You know, of course, I have some people who want to continue just with supportive therapy. And then we'll kind of change the frequency of therapy. Like maybe they just want once a month check-ins or something like that, or every other week or, so, or, or whatever it is. And, um, and I'm flexible. I'm okay with that as well. And, and certainly understand the need for ongoing support, particularly, you know, again, depending on what's, what's going on with people. So I would say everybody has a little bit different expectations going in. I don't, luckily I don't get too many who just from the start say, this isn't going to work. That doesn't happen that frequently, luckily. Oh, good. What mm -hmm. do people tell you, though, as you do the sessions? Like, what's their feedback? Do they feel a bit lighter? Do they say, oh, you know, this situation came up and I reacted better than I normally do. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Or like, what kind of feedback do you get? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it feels a little strange to toot my own horn, right? But it's really about, you know, it's about them using the skills, right? And so, you know, again, usually when people are doing that well, they're usually reporting positive outcomes or reporting that thing. They're feeling better. Things are going better. They're feeling like they're taking back control of their life. And, and, you know, usually that's a, you know, that's, that's a great feeling. Okay. I'm not asking you to practice psychotherapy on listeners, but can you tell them of a skill or two that may be helpful to them? And again, we have the disclaimer, you're not practicing medicine on a podcast, <laughs> but you tell them one or two things that may be helpful. Yeah. Oh man, I've got so many. So that's, that's a really good question. Um, again, and it kind of depends on what, what people are coming in with and, and it's really not one size fits all, but you know, a lot of, a lot of people do really cling to and, and like, and appreciate some of the mind, mindfulness skills. I know that they're very popular right now. A lot of people come in and already actually are using them, which is great. You know, nothing is one size fits all. And I always tell people, you know, if you try it and you don't like it, you know, don't get discouraged. You can try it again, or, or maybe it's not for you and that that's okay. You know, that's, that's a pretty, again, accessible, easy one for people to use and look up. I, I would say, again, you know, I tend to use a, a lot of DBT. I tend to use a lot of the, um, the cognitive reframing and, and helping people to reframe their thoughts. Um, it's a little bit harder, I would say, for people to teach that to themselves, although not impossible. So I would say that, you know, another another one, I tend to also, people tend to want to discuss communication and, and how to communicate with, with people in their lives that are important to them. For obvious reasons, relationships are really important. And so a lot of times I'll work with people on communication skills as well. And when people come to you, is it, I mean, there's acute problems, like, you know, if someone says you have cancer, obviously, you'll probably be thrown into a depression, or, you know, your spouse wants to divorce you, or you lose your job, mm -hmm. or you get hurt catastrophically, or someone dies. Right. 
But then there's the chronic longer term stuff. So what you get both kinds of patients and like what mm-hmm. are the main differentiators between them? I do. I do get both kinds of patients. Um, so I get people with, you know, had, had no, you know, relatively very few issues in their life. And then all of a sudden they're hit with something really horrible, right. That happens to them. And it's about helping them to kind of accept their new reality and helping them to adjust to their new reality. Right. And then you get people who, who have kind of, like you said, more chronic long-term, long-term issues. And so, you know, with the group, group number one, you might work a little bit more on things like acceptance and helping them to redefine their values and kind of redefine, you know, what's important to them, what they want to focus on. It might look a little bit different what you're emphasizing in those sessions. Uh, People with more chronic issues, again, you might use kind of more traditional CBT type things, coping skills, more kind of concrete things like that. Oh, but for the acute people that are experiencing all of a sudden a a big hardship, like the skill set is very different or... Yeah, I guess it, it just kind of depends on the individual, to be honest with you. But, you know, so in, in just, you know, if you're looking at overall trends, you just might tend to use some more things, you know, along the lines of acceptance and, and values based treatments when you're talking about helping people kind of adjust to something all of a sudden. But, but you can also, I mean, use, use some of the other skills that I mentioned for the chronic folks and, and vice versa. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, I really like to individualize treatment to the person rather than, you know, before they walk in the door are already prescribing what I'm going to do with them. And, and then sometimes it also takes a course, right? You get to know someone better, new things come up or they just start, you know, maybe opening up to you a little bit more. And so you might, you might change, change course a little bit with treatment or start focusing on something a little bit different. Well, are there um, archetypes of the people that you see as patients, you know, they're typical three, four, five, seven different flavors of of problem that people have you could speak to? That's a good question. I mean, as much as there are similar, there are definitely similarities, right? You kind of hear similar things from similar things from people struggling with, with certainly certain disorders and give example of, you know, chronic pain or insomnia. You certainly hear a lot of similarities. And um, I've actually, you know, created some manuals for those folks based based on those similarities and in what I'm hearing their problems are at the same time you know everyone's everyone's a little bit different and so what you don't want to do is just just treat treat everyone exactly the same and recognizing that there are um, nuances and that you know people's presenting problems can look a little bit different and you might have to tweak your treatments a little bit okay I don't know like uh, are there any stories of patients I know you can't give too many details, but are there any stories that stick out to you or you remember for some reason or another? I don't know. You you got like a super exciting result with somebody or something they they were going through was just, I don't know, it just really hit you. Any things that you remember that you could talk about? Yeah, I know. I'm trying to, it is challenging to answer this question without giving any identifying information away, right? So yeah, I mean, there have been, there have been so many people and you know, I, um, I feel like it's, it is, is such a privilege that I get to do what I get to do because I do see so many people improve and better their lives and make these, these huge changes. It's, it's incredibly rewarding. And it's also incredibly rewarding to have people trust you with, with that, with trust you with their health and with their information and, and all of that. And really seeing some people, you know, go from, you know, just sort of so depressed that they weren't, you know, leaving their house to really getting back in, in, to a life worth living into what they, you know, wanted to, wanted to be and wanted to do. And it's very rewarding. 
And I, and I will say again, with, with some of these really kind of, with some of these treatments, some of these sort of more straightforward presentations, you do see like, for, for example, with sleep disorders and insomnia in particular, you tend to see results really, really fast, which is a nice balance because, you know, again, with, with other people, it's not always that fast. So it's always, you know, you get that it's sort of refreshing that, okay, you know, a couple of sessions ago, you were um, telling me that, you know, this, this problem with sleep was bothering you so much that you felt like you're never going to get out of it. And it was such a trap. And now, you know, you're feeling, you're feeling great and refreshed and your whole life is different. And so it's, again, it's such a privilege to be able to, to share that with folks and to see that in the folks. Um, and I don't, I don't, I try not to take that for granted. That was um, COVID like scrambled people's brains in the past year and a half. What are you noticing? I'm assuming that, but yeah, what are you yeah. noticing? Yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, it's been really interesting in a number of ways, but I think one thing it's forced people to do is that it's forced people to be very reflective on their lives. You know, you're sort of, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, taking away so much of the noise and so much of the extra stuff. And then people are looking at their own relationships, their jobs, the things that are important to them, and kind of taking a step back and saying, hmm, is this really what I want, right? Am I really happy and satisfied with this? Or have I just been so busy, you know, that that I didn't take the time to think about it or reflect on it or, or notice it? And then also, you know, the the things that, that have been talked about, I know a lot, the media and whatnot, you know, there's been sort of um, a shift in in personal boundaries. People are feeling like, you know, there's not a lot of boundaries between work and their personal life if they're working from home or, you know, people might assume that you're working at all hours and that you have nothing else going on on the evenings or weekends because it's, there's been limited social activity and whatnot. And I think that part's been a big, a big struggle for people. People might not be, have spent as much time at home or spend as much time, you know, with certain members of their family. And, and that might, put some strain on some of those relationships. You know, those have been some of the, some of the big, the main things that have come up, obviously, you know, social isolation has come up a lot, but, you know, on the other hand, um, it has opened some doors certainly to telehealth and, you know, video therapy and, um, and, and all of these things. And now there's um, an organization called SIPAC, which has helped to enact some legislature, which has allowed some, you know, people to practice if they, you know, if they get a certain designation, they're allowed to practice telehealth across state lines. So, you know, there, there have been some, some positives as well, but certainly been an interesting point in history to, to, to do what I do for a living because I'm seeing things that I wasn't seeing before. Well, are you monitoring like kind of the zeitgeist of uh, patients, you know, like what, what do you notice last March versus last November versus January versus now? Are you seeing an evolution of thinking in people? Yeah, maybe I should have been tracking that better. Um, but um, yeah, I am I am seeing an evolution in, in thinking about people. And certainly at this point in time, people are feeling a lot more hopeful than they were at the beginning of the pandemic or even in the middle of the pandemic. So that's been really nice to see people are are starting to kind of, quote unquote, get more back to normal. And And what I often say is, you know, it's not like when people were coming and seeing me during COVID, it wasn't like the problems they were reporting were even necessarily new problems. There were just maybe things that they hadn't faced before or hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about before that were just exacerbated by COVID or coming to light because, again, they didn't have a lot of other distractions. So what do you see now? Are people um, 
I don't know, are people coming out of it mentally or are they still in it? Like, what are you observing? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's interesting. I've been talking to my colleagues about this as well. It's been busier than ever recently. And it's hard for me to understand that. You know, I'm still trying to understand why so many people are seeking services right now when it seems like, okay, things are again, improving and getting better. Um, and, but I, but I think, um, you know, part of what happened again is people had this reflective period or now they're kind of feeling like, okay, I need to kind of get back on track or get back into things. And, and, and again, some people, you know, COVID had, uh, had all these, had all these issues come up and now they're just starting to address them. So well, I heard there's like re-entry <laughs> therapy for some people that are, you know, they they were so traumatized by all this that they feel like they can't go back to normal life. They can't go out and interact with people or they don't know how to interact with people. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. I've heard that as well. You know, I guess I've seen that to some degree in my practice or, or just people being maybe reluctant to re-engage in some of those things for better or worse. Or, you know, if they, again, if they already struggled with something like anxiety and then you haven't been out in a year that, you know, the anxiety is probably going to be a bit worse than it was. And then, you know, different things. And, and then, you know, of course, some people have a lot of uh, health fears and health concerns around COVID as well. And so, you know, those things, those things are still true. People are still struggling with that. Yeah. I, you know, it's maybe getting personal stuff like that, but like either you or the therapists, you know, do you notice that I mean, I'm sure you probably see a range of responses, like some of the therapists are more scared than others or less scared. But in your conversations with them, do you notice anything and how they're interacting with their own patients if they're scared or if they're not scared? Or feel like, how do you, as a therapist, you got to keep your own emotions going and then check and everything. <laughs> so how does that affect right. you and like your, you know, your, your cohorts and stuff, the people you work with? What are you noticing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, particularly during COVID, right. Cause we're all kind of under the same experience, right. We're all kind of dealing with the same things. Right. Um, so yeah, sometimes what your clients are talking about might hit a little bit closer to home with you. And, and I think it is important to be mindful of those things. People are always going to bring up things that remind you, or, you know, there's always going to be a client or two that's going to bring up something that reminds you of something, something personal to you. Right. And so, you know, you've got to be mindful of that and keep it in check and kind of be aware of maybe how your own biases might be might be impacting your treatment or care in that way. Yeah. Do you receive training? I guess, I guess you must, right? Like how important is training for um, a psychologist or psychotherapist to understand what's going on in their own mind and not put themselves into the conversation inadvertently? Yeah, I do. I do think that, um, you know, we do receive training in graduate school on that. And, and again, I think the first step is just kind of being aware. One thing that that I do, and I know a lot of my colleagues do, are we have what's called peer supervision groups, which mean which means that, you know, I meet with my colleagues regularly to discuss some of those issues, some things that come up with, with clients where you're feeling maybe challenged with what's going on, or um, that, you know, maybe it's eliciting something personal in you. So you have some outlets to discuss that with other therapists as well. So what do you see as the um, the future of therapy from this point on? Anything new and exciting company coming or, I mean, what are you noticing right now? Yeah, that's a really good question. And again, you know, I think as much as there's been a lot of, of obvious, you know, negative things that have come out of the pandemic, I think one of the big positives is that it's really opened the door to telehealth and people feeling like they might have more options and care that way, especially if, you know, you're living in a rural community where, you might not have access to as many practitioners 
um, I think that trend's going to continue. And it's been really interesting. You know, some people, you know, might even at this point kind of go back and forth with one day they'll do a video session, one day they'll do in person. And so I, I do think that it's opened a lot of doors to that. I think there's also been a bit more, it's destigmatized mental health a bit um, because there has been so much news coverage about COVID's impact on mental health. And I think a lot of people, like you were saying, were struggling, maybe people who who hadn't had a lot of experience before with, you know, depression, anxiety, whatnot. And so it's, um, there's been, again, there's been a, a little bit of a reduction in the stigma and, and seeking help and seeking services. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's very good. Are you, um, how long have you been doing therapy for, by the way? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I, let's see, I got a lot, let's see, I've been doing therapy. I, so it's an interesting question because when you're in, when I'm, you're in graduate school, um, they have you start seeing clients pretty soon. So I would say I started, I saw my first client probably like in two, 2009. So, you know, and of course that was under the supervision of a psychologist. So, you know, I've been licensed for, I'm trying to think, uh, probably eight years now. Hopefully I'm not misquoting that, but found that amount of time. Yeah, no, well, I was going to ask you, what have you noticed from when you started to now? How have people changed or have they changed at all? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a question maybe you should ask someone if, if they've been a therapist for like 40 years. Yeah. You probably yeah. get real well, juicy answers, but it's, uh, it's good enough. What did you notice? Uh, obviously there's been more of an emphasis on social media um, and how that's been impacting mental health particularly among my younger clients and hearing about that, that a lot, that's, that's certainly been, a, been a big, big trend. And again, just, just expectations around therapy and how it's conducted. Everything's just really shifted to electronic and, and virtual. And, and that's been a big, a big shift. There've been some, even, you know, since I've been in grad school, there kind of been, you know, newer treatment modalities that have come out that have been more emphasized than they were in the past. So there's always going to be, you know, it's always going to be a dynamic field. And, you know, they're always uh, luckily still doing research and still making progress in that in that regard. So um, in terms of what people are presenting with, again, you know, I don't, I don't know that there do tend to be sort of sometimes trends for diagnoses. And I think it's really more about just awareness and, and um, how much, again, coverage some of these diagnoses get in the media and then people become more aware and then seek services. But, you know, other than that, you know, people, a lot of similar, a lot of similarities as well. A lot of similar issues that people were struggling with when I first started seeing patients that, that are still, still coming up today. Okay. And now that telehealth is, you know, freed up a lot of people, where do you, uh, where can you help people? Is it all over the U.S. or only certain states? Yeah. If you want to reach a- out to you, how do they do it and where can they come from? Yeah, that's a really good question. So my physical office is located in Houston, Texas. However, again, there's ongoing legislature in terms of SIPAC states. And so it's it's constantly changing, but I can look up and, and read you some of the states that do are currently SIPAC participating states. And, and since you know I do have this designation, I'm allowed to conduct telehealth in those states, um, Arizona, Colorado, Delaware, DC, Georgia, Illinois, Maryland. Missouri, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, um, obviously Texas, Utah, and Virginia. So, so again, it's been it's been kind of neat having clients all over the country as well. well. Very good. Well, Liz, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate your time. If you like this podcast. 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.